0: Hello and welcome to Hawkeye Nation. This is Hotcast, your Iowa football, basketball, and recruiting podcast brought to you by GoIowaAwesome and Rivals.com. I'm your recruiting analyst and host, Elliot Clough at Elliot Clough on Twitter, joined by publisher Adam Jacoby and managing editor Ross Binder. Before we get started, make sure wherever you are listening, you hit that subscribe button, especially on YouTube. Hit a like, drop a comment, let us know what you're thinking about. Well, what we're going to talk about today, women's basketball, men's basketball, Ben Keeter and the wrestling squad getting a W over Oklahoma State this afternoon. And, uh, you know, I didn't put it in the outline, guys, but I went and saw Cooper Koch play this last weekend before I saw Iowa, unfortunately, fall to Illinois. But that article is going to be coming soon. If you want to see it, you can check it out at iowadatrivals.com backslash subscribe if you're not a subscriber yet, which you should be anyway. Women's basketball, the most, well, secondary, most recent thing today. We will get to wrestling, I promise. And I'm not going to talk about it because I don't know what I'm talking about. We got Ross Binder here for that. But women's basketball, they get the win over Illinois to avenge for the men. And they're back in the W column after falling to Indiana on Thursday. Adam, you and Braden were there covering the game. Uh, tell us your your thoughts, your takeaways. Women back in the W column. And Caitlin Clark. Gets her fifth triple-double of the season as well.
1: Fifth triple-double of the season, her 16th of her career, which is bonkers. I mean, We're talking about college players here, 40 minutes a game, and, and she's still on triple-double number 15. But it was not really her best day, especially shooting the ball. Uh, she was 6 for 18 from the field. Most of those were three-pointers because Illinois focused hard on taking away those dribble drives from her. Uh, especially where she can sort of operate from the middle and, and distribute from there. That was a big focus for the Illini. And so sure enough, they they kept Caitlin to just four shots from inside the arc and they put the onus on the rest of the Hawkeyes to step up. And we've seen a few times that the uh, supporting cast doesn't always make that leap and, and provide that support. They did on Sunday. And that was why Iowa was able to crack the century mark. Uh, they won 101 to 85 uh, and and really stayed ahead of Illinois by double digits for the last, I believe it was 33 minutes of the game. like this this was never a close contest, especially in the second half. But it was also never a blowout either. I think Iowa's biggest lead was 20 points. And if it if it was more than that, it wasn't by much. And we've seen Iowa blow leads that are close to that. We've seen Iowa give up runs that are, excuse me, close to that. So it was never really a sure, sure thing, I thought, until Molly Davis's uh, steal off of an inbounds pass uh, turns it into a layup. And then it's 90 to 70 with six minutes to go. At that point, you can say, all right, now it's ball game. But with Caitlin struggling, Struggling. Uh her, her effective field goal percentage was still 47%. Uh, thank you to Coach Bluter for that stat. But with her struggling and, and really missing a lot of shots from the field, there's been times where people say, you know, that's the the blueprint to uh to shutting down Iowa. And you look at how the rest of the team uh responded, and uh the players who were not Caitlin Clark, 12 for 23 shooting from behind the arc. That is over 50%. And, uh, you know, Hannah Stalke, 20 points. Uh, Kate Martin, 13 points. Most importantly, I would say Molly Davis with 17 points. And she had been sick for the last four games, technically started in all of them, but had only played, I want to say, 56 minutes total, had only scored nine points in those four games, was clearly, visibly never 100% through all that, and it, this felt like her first game back being that uh, agent of controlled chaos that Iowa really, really needs to sort of offset all the attention that Caitlin Clark gets. So, really, a team win. Uh, Coach Bluter was especially happy about that, especially happy about getting uh, that would be 77 points from non Caitlin Clark players. Like, that is a big, big number and exactly what they're going to need coming into March.
0: Yeah. Uh, I I do have a question about that, Adam. I I know you had referenced the, this is the model to, to beat Iowa, right? Well, I, I guess my, my question is, is it the only model that does beat Iowa or is there other ways? Because it didn't beat them today, but Illinois is also significantly less talented than like an Indiana or a, you know, well, South Carolina is just really good. Like that's just the name that came to my head, but you know, Ohio state LSU, these, these other teams that they'll see as the season, especially will will, goes into the postseason. So is it the model that, that either works like 50% of the time? Is it the model that works for these top tier teams that have the talent to keep up with Iowa? Or is it just, is it just not the model?
1: Well, I I think it's, some combination of all three of those, even though that's a little bit contradictory. There are other ways to beat the Hawkeyes because the way that Indiana beat them is not the same way that Ohio State beat them. And really, what we saw from Illinois was a smaller guard. Um, and I'm blanking on her first name, uh, Makira Cook. Um, uh, I think it was Makira Makira Cook. Uh smaller, only five, six, and and Iowa has typically not been. Uh, really terrorized by the smaller guards. I mean, you look at the Ohio State loss, and and a big uh, factor there was Cody McMahon. Cody McMahon is basically the size of Hannah Stalke. Uh, you look at the Indiana game; it was um, Sarah Scalia. Scalia, I don't know how she pronounces her, so apologies in advance. Um, you know, more of a um, distant shooter, uh, but Cook was affecting the game in any number of ways, and and also sort of. Getting in Caitlin's head a little bit, uh, helping to uh, feed into that frustration. And ultimately, like Cook outscored Caitlin for the game, 26 points to 24, which you don't really see very often. So, you know, is it a, a blueprint? Yes. Is it the same model? It, it, it sort of depends on where you, you know, sort of draw the line on what's the same or what's different. Because there was one player, Cook, who had 26 points, there was another one who also got hot from deep um uh, genesis bryant uh 19 points 3 for 8 from deep and so that's a way to put some pressure on iowa but if you're not able to stop them on defense and whatever illinois plan was on defense that i mean look i'm i think a lot of myself like my creativity my uh my uh and all that I I am not so galaxy brain as to say, I'm going to let Iowa beat me from the perimeter. Let's see how they do that. (laughs) Lo and behold, that's exactly what they did. Hmm. (laughs) Iowa is one of the best three-point shooting teams in the nation. And so just giving them open three after open three, and I think we're going to talk about that with another Iowa-Illinois game uh, later in this podcast, (laughs) but it didn't work for the Hawkeye men and it didn't work for the Illini women you give great shooters open shots, they're going to knock them down with frightening regularity. And so, yeah, Caitlin only shot, only shot five for 14 from deep. But if that is the sum effect of having her create all this gravity and all this defensive attention to the point where the rest of your team can get 77 points, that's just not whatever you want to call that as a blueprint. That's not going to work. And We'll see if any team is um, galaxy-brained enough to to try a, a strategy of collapsing on that quite so often because, I mean, at the end of the day, 101 points, no matter how much you try to get into Caitlin Clark's head or or you grab her jersey every time she walks by, I mean, the, the amount of physicality that Clark dealt with, uh, her frustration is palpable and for good reason. There was a lot of uncalled, Uh, contact. And to the refs credit, it was at the very least consistent. But, you know, it it really looked like Illinois had this plan, executed as best as they could, still lost by 16. Uh, Ross, were you watching this one on TV? Did anything sort of jump out different? or, Or did the announcers talk about any sort of things that maybe we wouldn't have heard from at the arena?
2: I did watch it. I don't know that they brought up things that you wouldn't have seen at the arena, uh, very much. Um, you know, you know, you mentioned that Illinois had this plan and, uh, and obviously didn't work. I think the thing that surprised me a little bit was that they didn't have, uh, a backup plan when, you know, I think the idea of giving Iowa, you know, make the non Clark players hit shots from outside to beat you. I can see the logic in that to an, to an extent. um, until they actually start making shots and beating you. And then you're not adjusting to like, okay, this plan isn't going to work. We can't just keep giving them open looks because it's, they're actually making shots today. It's not one of those days where they're going five for 23 from outside and you can maybe get away with that. So once Iowa, you know, once Davis is making threes, Martin's making threes, um, Taylor McCabe is making threes you know, at that point it's like, uh, I think, you know, we need to readjust and Illinois just did not make that readjustment. Like they were, you know, just determined to not let Clark into the lane and not let her get to the rim and, uh, affect the game that way. But like you said, it didn't work because Iowa had that double digit lead for basically three quarters, got it up to, you know, 15, 20 with regularity in the second half. Um, and was able to you know this was a, a pretty pretty easy win uh, overall because of that and yeah that you know that that initial plan may have may have made sense but the lack of an adjustment when it wasn't working was um that surprised me a little bit
0: now what i'm what i'm curious about again and i'm, I'm asking questions here because i'm kind of covering i i have A general idea of of what's going on with the women, largely because I follow along with Adam and Ross's coverage Um, and I tweet about them when I am watching them. But considering the amount of my time and energy that goes into uh, men's basketball and then uh, recruiting in both football and basketball, my brain just doesn't have enough space for all of the Iowa sports. So this question here, Adam, um, is for the people as much as it is for me when you talk about this, this blueprint or this model for going after Iowa and I guess there's the, the thought that Caitlin's going to get hers, but, but make the rest of the team beat you. Who is, I, I, I don't, I don't mean this in like the negative connotation way. Who is like the second fiddle or, or, or number two option that has to get going? Like if they're going to beat some of these better teams in the country, like Ohio State, when they play them this coming Sunday um, at home, uh, who, who has to get going? Is it is it Hannah Stolke? Is it is it Molly Davis? Is it Kate Martin? Is it Gabby Marshall, who has had her her struggles when shooting from deep, but when she's on, she's on.
1: The answer is Molly Davis. And the reason is Molly is the most potent creator with the basketball in her hands, other than Caitlin Clark on the team. And frankly, I'm not sure it's close Uh, in that four game stretch where Molly was barely playing, Iowa was two and two and didn't look that great playing. And that is, I would say a little bit of a cause for concern because when you look at that backcourt, I mean, yeah, there are a lot of different skill sets. But what Molly Davis has is not really something that you can coach up in a player. I mean, we're, we're talking Galaxy IQ. We are talking like a, a queen on a checkers board. She understands where to be, where that ball is going to go before the defense does. So she's running to spaces that are going to be open before the defense knows that they're opening it up for her. It's incredible to watch, and it it helps her facilitate. And again, when you go back to how much gravity and how much defensive attention Caitlin commands, when you have that second facilitator and who has the wherewithal to know exactly where the ball is going to be when like when to be in position to make that play. And, and we've seen it, Ross, how many dozens of times have we seen Molly make a play where you're just like, how was she there? Like, how did she know to be there? How, like it how did she get to that pass at that exact moment? How did it, or how did she gather one step from the hoop and then get the ball up? Like with some circus shot and she hits these circus shots with about a hundred percent accuracy. It's, I don't know how she doesn't make more mistakes, but she doesn't. And and she does it in such a dynamic way. And with, I mean, let's say with a little bit of swag for a little 5'7 girl with a headband, you know, like the team feeds off that, the crowd feeds off that. And how can you not, right? For for somebody who's making these plays and, and doing it opposite Caitlin Clark, everything sort of flows from that, from having that second facilitator because Hannah Stulky will get hers, but you know, someone's got to be feeding that ball into the post. And when you have Davis on the other side, like all it takes is one extra pass, two extra passes and Stulkey's going to be wide open. Uh, Lisa Bluter mentioned even today that half of Stulkey's layups were uncontested. Actually, Caitlin Clark said that, but she meant it in a nice way. Um, you know, that was a, function of having a fully healthy or as close to fully healthy uh, Molly Davis. And that function was sort of missing from those previous four games. Uh, Kate Martin is sort of the same way. Great shooter, uh, has really stepped up her offense, but she's most lethal as a catch-and-shoot shooter from the perimeter, especially. She is better, she, she fills a, pretty similar role to like Aaron White especially when he was an upperclassman like he Aaron White could find his production all he had to do was just be in the right place at the right time and so like Gabby Marshall again when she's healthy and and we'll bring her up one more time like she's another one of those catch and shoot people Sydney Fulter a big big option in that backcourt but another one of those like let me go create my like let me create off the uh off the glass, right let me create off of a catch and shoot as opposed to a let me beat somebody off the dribble. So Molly's skill set in particular is just not really there for Iowa to replicate elsewhere down the roster. and when teams can focus all that attention on Caitlin uh, like a, like a box in one defense is, um, what has worked in uh, prior games. Yeah, it's it's easier to sort of shut Iowa's offense down to, to sort of confound Caitlin Clark, get her frustrated, this, that. But when Molly's over there making plays at will, stealing inbounds passes, and, and again, I don't know how she hits all her layups. She hits all her layups. <laughs> She's 5'7". Her ability to do that keeps Iowa's engine moving, and you take that out, and I don't see where Iowa replaces it elsewhere. So, uh, yeah, to answer your question, I I think it's Molly Davis. I don't think it's particularly close, but that doesn't mean that the rest of the team, uh, especially that starting lineup, that doesn't mean that they're not also filling very essential roles in and of themselves too. Uh, Ross, would you agree with my assessment?
2: Yeah, I would definitely agree that I think what Davis provides is not something that's duplicated by anyone else, um, you know, other than Clark kind of, but that's, that's a different story. Uh, but, you know, there isn't anyone else on the bench that can do what she does. There's no one else in the starting lineup that does what she does. Um, you know, the only thing I would add is that the other thing Iowa needs is, you know, they need the players to hit those open shots from outside when they, when they get them and where Iowa struggles is those games where the shots aren't falling. And, you uh, and then things, the offense gets bogged down then, and we've seen, you know, that's when they're, they're prone to getting upset or the, the risk is there at least. Um, and you know, when the shots are falling, like they were today, uh, I was, you know, just virtually impossible to guard because it's pick your poison and the poison is going to get you whichever way you go. So, you know, Illinois picked one particular, you know, poison today and that outside shooting, got them good. Like, you you mentioned that uh, non-Clark players made 12 threes today. I mean, that's... Iowa as a team had 17. Like, if you give a good offense 17 threes, they're probably going to beat you. And they're probably going to score 100 points, which is exactly what Iowa did. And uh, so, I think once the... If the perimeter shooting is there and you've got Molly as that secondary creator, that's when Iowa's Offense gets really, really difficult uh, to slow down, and this team is gonna, you know, the, their tournament run is gonna ride or die on the offense, you know. The, and the they need to hit shots. They need Molly doing what Molly does, you know. I, this team is not gonna win a sixty to fifty-five defensive slugfest, most likely, you know. There's the one percent world where that happens, but this team is not built to do that, really. So you know they're they going to need the offense to be to be humming and clicking and uh and when it is they're going to be really really good
0: some um, way somehow phil parker and kirk Ferentz cringed a little bit somewhere when you i said know that, ross. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what about the
0: wins per game ross Come on. <laughs> yeah, get it together uh,
1: one thing that i'll add is the playmaking that especially that we saw uh in the illinois game wasn't obviously was not just Caitlin Clark, but also wasn't just Molly Davis either. Uh, there were, um, like Kate Martin had four assists, Sydney of had four assists, Gabby before she got hurt, three assists, uh, five, I think I mentioned from Molly Davis. So all in all, 28 assists on 36 made shots and 18 of those assists not coming from Caitlin Clark is in and of itself a very big deal. And if you just watch the game, They did such a good job of making, like, I would wager that at least half of those 18 assists would have been hockey assists for Caitlin Clark, too, because Iowa moved the ball with such great ease and and turned good shots into great shots with such regularity. And when I asked Coach Bluter about that after the game, like she just like took this big breath, like, like oh, like, that's what she's been asking for this whole season. And they, they actually got it from the rest of the team here. And so if that's something that they can actually, you know, turn into something that is sustainable, repeatable, uh, this is the right time of the year to do it. But that's a whole lot easier said than done.
2: Yeah, I was just going to echo what you said about the hockey assist. Like, the ball movement today was excellent. Like, there were so many, like, passes and then another pass and then an open shot. And, uh, and yeah, like, if, if Clark got credit for hockey, it's just hockey assist, hockey assists. she might have had a quadruple double today because, you know, she was just setting up uh, really, really involved in a lot of those shots, you know, that came two pa- one or two passes later and everything. So, yeah, just phenomenal ball movement
0: uh, in the offense today. Ross, you mentioned the NCAA tournament when we're looking ahead for the women, because that's what we're doing for the men right now. Right. I mean, it's, it's bubble. Is it burst? Like, and again, we're going to get to that here in a moment, but there's a question for both of you here uh, regarding this, whoever wants to take it, go ahead. What, what kind of outlook are we talking about with the women? Do they need to win the big 10 tournament in order to be a, you know, a one seed going into the NCAA tournament? What, like, what kind of seat are we talking? I mean, I know the women's basketball tournament just sold out. That's probably going to be Iowa North is Minneapolis up there. I know there's a ton of alum up there, and it's not that long of a drive for folks who live in Iowa, um, as opposed to, you know, maybe maybe Indianapolis would be a little bit too far. We live in the Midwest. It wouldn't. Now, what what does it look like for the women? Is this a scenario where... You may run into, like, I mentioned the Big Ten tournament. That's my number one question. Do they need to win it to be a, a one or a two seed? And two, with the way it's structured, I mean, how likely is it that they're going to run into a South Carolina before the Final Four? Are they going to run into one of these top four teams before the Final Four? Um, I mean, maybe even an LSU. And, and I mean, for the entertainment value, that sounds pretty dope. But at the same time, that makes it that much more difficult to get back to where they were last year. So Big Ten tournament, NCAA tournament.
2: Do you want to go for it, Adam? Okay, fine.
1: I I, <laughs> I, I didn't want to monopolize it. Uh, so from what I've heard, I, I I haven't confirmed it, but what one of the other B-writers behind me who's good about this sort of stuff uh, said that Iowa was basically... Out of the running for the one seed at this point, that Ohio State has the tiebreaker, and uh, at 15 wins and with Iowa at three losses, there's just no mathematical way for Iowa to get ahead of the Buckeyes. So, a one seed in the Big Tournament is out of the question. And um,
2: in the Big if, sorry in the Big Ten, not not in the yes, A's yet.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, I would say that Iowa looks more likely to be a two seed in the NCAA Tournament as well. Iowa would be able to get some good wins on its resume. I mean, namely Ohio State, Indiana, maybe Nebraska or Maryland once again. Uh, but one, we have seen the NCAA tournament committee, more so on the men's side, but not exclusively on the men's side. We've seen them more or less ignore the Big Ten tournament, ignore the quality of wins that that come, you know, closer to that Sunday. To Selection Sunday in particular, so I don't really share as many people's optimism that running the table in the Big Ten would bump Iowa from the, you know, the projected two to the one line. If they got some help from the teams in, ahead of them, I could see it. I'm not ruling it out, but I think they do need some help.
2: Uh, I think, I mean, one thing that would help them in that scenario is that it probably involves them beating Ohio State twice in the next week. Like they're going to get Ohio State in the regular season finale next Sunday, and there's a good chance they'll see they would see Ohio State in the Big Ten tournament final. So you know they would have to have two two wins over Ohio State. Ohio State has two more losses in that scenario. So I think that's a possibility. But I agree with you that. It, uh, it, it would be very difficult, I think. Um,
1: yeah, if they're not taking Ohio State's spot in, on that one line, I'm not sure who else's spot that they could reliably expect to take. So, yeah, they they have to sweep Ohio State, and and that includes seeing them in the Big Ten tournament. If Ohio State gets upset even by uh, a Michigan State or or what have you prior to that Iowa game, you know, You could say that that's even worse for the Buckeyes. I don't think the committee would agree. I think Iowa needs that specific win twice. I think you're right on that. So again, that's something that is sort of out of Iowa's hands to some extent. I mean, they can control whether they win, but they can't necessarily control whether or not they see Ohio State twice. So they are going to need a little bit of help. And some of it even a little bit paradoxical, but there is there are plenty of paths for them to get to that one line in March. But even if they don't, let's remember, like okay, so they're they're in the like ESPN's got them projected to the same um, bracket as Stanford. Stanford would be the one seed. It'd be a tough matchup but also Stanford doesn't want to see Iowa as the 2 seed at all. No. None of these teams other than South Carolina who is not going to care who the 2 seed is point blank. Nobody else wants to see Iowa anywhere near they don't even want to see Iowa prior to the championship game. Because Iowa still got Caitlin Clark. Iowa still the last team to beat South Carolina. It happened last season but it happened Right. <laughs> Iowa is built to be dangerous in March. It starts in the backcourt and they've got the most dangerous backcourt, especially if Molly Davis is at a hundred percent. So whether Iowa's a one or a two sort of, it changes a little bit of stuff, but not a lot. And uh, it's certainly not going to affect the amount of fan support that the Hawkeyes have, um, in minneapolis for the big 10 tournament whether they're a two seed or uh they're probably not going to get passed by indiana i wouldn't suspect although i don't know the state of that tiebreaker either regardless of that that's not going to make fewer io fans show up to that sold out tournament too so they've got a pretty exciting schedule ahead of them one way or the other and they're going to have a lot of uh support wherever that happens to take them
2: i mean the uh, incidentally attorney it um it uses an s curve right with uh, the the mm-hmm. seeds so like the top the number the best number 1 seed should play the weakest number 2 seed and so on so south carolina should be the top number 1 seed for the women's tournament you know you'd hope iowa wouldn't fall down to be the quote unquote weakest of the number 2 seeds because that should be the only way that there's that potential for a, a bracket that has south carolina and iowa you know as the one and two seeds and uh you know that would be a scenario where obviously iowa having to get through south carolina in the elite eight to even get back to the final four i don't think anyone is, is too anxious for that particular matchup but um no you know, yeah
1: the, the the committee would not try to set that up prior to uh the dates in cleveland I, you you yeah. would think you
0: would hope especially yeah. if they beat ohio state twice yeah. Right. Yeah, for sure.
1: oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. Um, well, with how things are going for the men, we may be in a scenario in March where uh, all of our focus is on women's basketball and, of course, wrestling on uh, IowaRivals.com. With With that said, uh, let's let's don't, flip a little bit.
2: Don't, don't disparage the Nit, Elliot. Come on now. It's the, okay. it's the oldest tournament. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Ugh, hey, it's also home games, too. Right. better better Carver <laughs> than I don't know Dayton maybe.
0: I don't want to travel to Dayton. <laughs> I'll I'll take those NIT games in Iowa City, man. Um with, with that said, talking about the men a little bit. That lost to Illinois, the the first half, the first probably 10 minutes, I think we were all saying, "Up, oh, first to 100 wins." That's how this is gonna go. Of course, Illinois scored 95 and beat the Hawkeyes by 10. But um, I, you, you guys saw my three takeaways article. Write that after every game. Those are the things that stick out to me the most. Things that they talk about in the the post game presser. Um, and to me, I am never. I I I'm I'm truly. I hate the fact that almost every game we can talk about officiating, whether it's women's, whether it's men's, whether it's Big Ten, what have you, because I, I control what you can control, right? Like that's that's generally a sentiment that people who are successful subscribe to. But when you officiate two halves completely differently and you let things go and then you go to the second half and you call 26 fouls and shoot 42 free throws, 42 free throws is absurd. And I i mean, it was bad both ways, man. Like, it, there's no flow to a game. You guys saw it on on TV. You got to see the replays. I mean, you could tell live that they were bad calls and they'd play them on the big screen. And I, again, this is both ways. This is not just in, in, in terms of how they were calling games for Iowa or calling fouls for Iowa. Um, but what it did is it threw off the entire flow of the game. And that's where Iowa they they lost some of their mojo, so to speak. There was and what is the, Iowa's offense about? Flow, movement, uh, and, and finding ways to get the basket, backdoor cuts, setting screens for shots for Peyton Sanford in particular, because when we know he's going, it's when he's moving. And the way it threw off the momentum of the game and I was a Iowa's shot selection. I think was impacted by it as well. Um, Josh Dick said in post game that he felt like they were getting called for lighter fouls, and Illinois was again. I to me it didn't appear as such, but when you're officiating a game like that, it does affect the flow of it, and this seems to be a a, a trend, especially with uh, Jeffrey Henderson, uh, high knees ref man, he's bad. <laughs> <laughs> he seems like a, a really good guy. Like, and I, 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 I hate having that qualifier. Anytime you, you criticize a guy, but like on the court, he's, he's talking with coaches. He's talking with players. He, he seems like a friendly dude. I've never interacted with him, but man, is he a bad official? Like <laughs> this is two games in a row where he's officiated Iowa. And, and these type of things have happened. There's unnecessary stoppage. Like
2: did, did he do the Wisconsin game?
0: I think so. Yeah. Um and and so I, I I again I I don't mean to make this particular game about one official, but officiating was a, a very large part of it to where I left the game, I left the arena, and that was the thing that I really felt like I had to write about. I I didn't leave the arena and write that, but I, I, I left and went to the media room. I was like, this is something that I don't want to write about, but I feel like I have to. And that's unfortunate.
1: Yeah, it's, it, I've griped about it on Twitter a lot. But that's because there's something that seems fundamentally broken about the state of vitiating, uh, not only in the Big Ten, but in college basketball and, and really in a lot of college sports. And I think some of it is also the fact that television's just a whole lot better than referees on the floor at seeing like the right angle. For a play, uh seeing it in slow motion, most importantly, having you know 10 or 15 seconds to find it during that stoppage in play to give it to the audience. And, and so we consume it as an instant replay. And we're like, oh, how do you miss that call? Well, how did it take the TV truck 15 seconds to find it? Yeah, you know, and but we expect the official from 20 feet away to, to see it. And I'm not saying that to make excuses for bad calls, but it really does seem like we have created this expectation, and um,
0: uh, well, there goes our demonetization again. There, Elliot wasn't the main one on the screen, so nobody saw it except for you guys. You guys got a private show. <laughs> also, Hot Talk After Dark, Drake relays, not a Drake shirt. Men's basketball. I was. Just, I gotta clarify that. Not a fan here. Okay. No. Now that everybody has heard about my I'm not I'm not gonna say that. Go ahead, Ab. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> but it, an officiating. It, it seems,
1: yeah, it, it seems like officiating ought to be three things in particular, and, and that is um precise, fair, and fast. And television is able to provide those things in a way that the people on the floor are just never going to be able to compare to. So it really does feel like to me that just putting this on the people on the floor, putting this on human and and saying, all right, get rid of the error is not setting the referees up for success either. So what I would really like to see and, and what I would think would help things a lot is one, de-emphasize referees just in general because i don't think the three least competent players or the three least competent people on the floor of the 13 should be having this sort of outsized control on the flow and outcome of a game like that they're not good enough to be able to stop the game for five minutes to to look at you know whether a ball grazed somebody's fingertips well we want to get the ball or we want to get the call right Get it right more often first. But really what it also comes down to is they're not incorporating that ability to review on video nearly effectively enough. And like tennis does a great job of it. Why? Because their replays take five seconds. And granted, it's a little bit easier than in tennis than it is in basketball or it would be in football or or basically any other sport, but They still have a way to use that video technology to overturn an obvious or a a demonstrably objectively incorrect call and do it quickly. Basketball should be able to do that because we're able to see the incorrect call 15, 20 seconds after it happens. Like, and that's just the TV truck. That's not even an official whose, whose job it is to take care of the game. That's just someone who's there for entertainment. So if that can be more closely incorporated and I would I would say like have a fourth official and all they do is sit at the table and just like review video. And so if a referee does one of these, it doesn't mean I get to go watch TV for the next three and a half minutes. It's saying, hey, friend, <laughs> like Amelia or, or, or Shannon or, or, or Bobby at the TV, was that in or out? And then you just solve that in five seconds and you can be mad at TV ref all you want or screen ref, but at least the game's going to go quicker. And (laughs) for all of this focus that there is on, well, how do we speed the game up? How do we like, how do we make it more TV friendly and fit into the window? Take stuff off the referee's plates, give them less admin because so much of these games is just televised admin by people who aren't, the people that the fans hate to watch. They're the least competent ones on the floor. So that is, that's my little diatribe on the state of state of officiating. And, but the big 10 can still get the people on the floor better than they are now.
0: And absolutely to boot Adam, that's kind of the, you mentioned them being the least competent. That's the nature of the job. Just based on how many angles you've got, too. So I, I like your solution of having a fourth ref. And they need to be in the vicinity, too. This oh, can't, yeah. I, let's not do this, oh, somebody in New York made the decision, but we don't know who it is. We don't need another Cooper DeGene event. Cooper DeGene, Minnesota event, you guys. Sorry, too soon. I know. That hurt all of us, just even saying it. But it's 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 unfortunate, the state of things let's just let's say say it that way it's unfortunate i mean you can say that without saying what i said about jeffrey henderson being a bad official even though he is um and and say it the situation's unfortunate the way it's affecting the game is unfortunate 42
2: free throws well, i th- i think what adam said about uh, the need for officiating to be fair like i think that matters to me more than the anything else i mean i'd want him to be accurate too but the fairness and consistency, like that was what really stood out about that game. Uh, the Iowa-Illinois game was the first half, the flow of the game is great. It's back and forth, up and down the court. You know, the, I mean, the shots were falling, which helped a lot, but, you know, that was how you want to see basketball played is free flowing, lots of movement, lots of action. The second half is the complete opposite because the officials have, for whatever reason, decided to call 26 fouls, like you said, and you know, 42 free throws. Which there, it's not like the level of contact in the second half was dramatically different than the first half. The guys were not like oh, wow. throwing elbows and you know, doing anything crazy, it was still basketball. Still, this, they're playing this, trying to play the same way they were in the first half, but for whatever reason, the officials have decided. Mm, we need to call some more fouls. We're not we're not a big enough part of this game apparently. So so, so it, to
1: that end, uh Elliot what you were saying with Josh Dix being that in that second half, you know, I was uh going to the side of the floor where there's a different referee calling, you know, that side of the action. And and likewise Illinois is on a, you know, going to the other side of the floor and and they're playing in front of another referee. But in that second half, there's just way more calls. From Josh's perspective, like he's playing defense, or he's playing offense and getting you know all this contact on him, and none of it's getting called. He's playing defense in front of the same referee, and stuff that's half as egregious gets called. Yeah, he will interpret that as well. The officials were calling you know softer fouls on us than than on Illinois because. His understanding of it would bear that out, even if it's clearly not a, or even if it's a situation where, uh, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Hanlon's razor, you know, Occam's razor is the the most simple explanation is usually the right one. Hanlon's razor is don't attribute to malice that can, which, or that can, which adequately be explained by incompetence, (laughs) Right. You can say, oh, the refs hate Iowa, this, that. Or they're, they're not good enough to like carry out a hit job on certain teams. Right? We, we have to see them be good at refereeing to, to decide that they're being bad on purpose. So rather than try to get wrapped up in like what their agenda is, this, that, it, it really is just a situation where they need to get better. And they need to put them in. You know, the Big Ten sort of needs to put them in position to be better. And you can say, well, just because the situation works for the Big Ten doesn't mean that it's feasible for D three, D two, or even you know half the other conferences in in D one. But it doesn't have to be either. The Big Ten is this nationwide TV first, TV money first, two entity. Like it is its own entertainment complex at this point, which means it can set its own rules. And if this big TV first conference can't figure out a way to use said TV to make its officiating quicker, better, and more accurate, like, how do you not figure that out on day one of these nine figure TV deals? And, and this expansion out to the West Coast, like that should be a very high priority because fans will come to see a, a, a conference that actually referees like it's the 21st century.
0: <laughs> and to boot, here's the thing, you know, I haven't been on the beat and I haven't been following Iowa or the Big Ten in terms of basketball closely enough to necessary make, necessarily make this assertion. So I'm going to put it up and and out there for you guys. That second half, what we were looking at, made me think a lot of Zach Eadie, a guy who is very difficult to officiate, but you also have to take context in the fact that he is 7'4 and 300 pounds. He's not only difficult to officiate, he's difficult to guard. Now, when we're talking about that, I I will reference how frequently fouls are called on opposing defenders with him just because of that circumstance. Now, folks, when they look at Purdue, I I mean I'm not necessarily planning on doing a bracket uh, anytime that you know involves money, especially if Iowa makes a tournament, because you know that's a little iffy. But um. Purdue is not a team that you look at and say, you know, that's a Final Four team because of the track record that we've seen, especially with Zach Eadie on the team. They are this powerhouse, just forced to be reckoned with during the regular season because he's officiated a certain way in the regular season. And then you get into the tournament and they lose to a 16 seed. <laughs> this is what we're talking like, and, and the Big Ten is not hasn't been a team or a, a conference that sends somebody to the national championship, to the final four with regularity, like they should as a conference that's referenced as one of the best. It's not the best. The big 12 is the best, but one of the best they should be sent because now we're starting to talk about officiating and ticky tack fouls and, and yeah, maybe not necessarily the, the latter as much as, as the prior, but like the issue of, non-accurate officiating and how that translates, therefore, to the tournament and a lack of success for the Big Ten. Now, as a conference, wouldn't you look at that and say, we have an issue. We want to be winning national titles. We want to be going to Final Fours, but we're not. And what's the commonality between all these teams? There you go, officials.
1: Yeah, yeah. They, they, the Big Ten teams are conditioned by the officials, and, and rewarded with wins to play four fouls. Guys, here's a stat for you. Zach Eady, shocker, is number one in fouls drawn in per 40 minutes, according to Ken Pond. 9.3 fouls called per 40 minutes. So basically, almost fouling two guys out per game every single game. Number two is at eight Oh, Zach Edie gets 1.3 fouls more per 40 minutes than anybody else in the nation. So to put that in perspective, that 1.3 foul difference is the same as number two to number twenty seven. <laughs> That's how big that gap is.
0: Oh, my God. That's painful.
1: And so, of course, when Edie goes and plays in the uh, NCAA tournament, when he's got referees that don't officiate him the way that the big 10 does. Then of course he's, he's going to, you know, get hit on the arm. Hey, where was that? And the Southland or the ACC or the, the, the PAC 12 rest in power. They're going to be like, buddy, come on. It's March. (laughs) Let's let's, let's be real here. Boilermaker Shaq. Like you, you can handle this. You're seven, four, three Oh five. Like just go up play ball. And Elliot, like you said, the big 10 does not send teams deep into the final four, into the championship game because they are not used to having to, let's just say it, earn it the way that teams in other conferences do. They earn it by, you know, drawing bogus charge calls, right? They, they, they earn it by, whatever anticipation foul seminars the Big Ten sends its referees to in any given offseason. But they don't earn it by putting the ball in the basket in these high-pressure situations the way that teams from other conferences do, and the results sort of bear that out. They're not as battle-tested, go and get that bucket, the way that Big 12 teams are. And some of it's because, you know, Houston and Kansas and all those teams are there and Baylor and, you know, they, those guys are gigantic and large and play solid defense. But the Big Ten has guys like that too, right? It's not like the Big Ten is a bunch of John Lickliders running around. It's physically the Big Ten can, should be able to hang with anybody. And it doesn't because the officials don't referee the game the way that the other conferences do. And it's a disservice to all 10 guys that are on the court, regardless of what Iowa's involvement is. This is not an Iowa gripe. This is a, I'm a fan of basketball gripe.
0: John, I was going to say John Licklider catching strays in 2024. (laughs)
2: Adam Adam just made me think about John Licklider and Brad Davison. So I hope he's happy for himself for, for that. So.
1: You're the one that brought up Brad Davidson, not
0: <laughs> Now, when was the last time – I'm going to run this by you guys. No cheating. When was the last time a true Big Ten team won the national title?
2: It's Michigan State, the Mateen Cleaves uh, team. What year was that? It was like 98 or something.
0: Adam?
1: I'm I'm almost positive he's right, and I think it was either 98 or 99.
0: 2000. All right. Okay. They beat Florida 89 to 76 in Indianapolis. The last Flintstones, the last, but I said true big 10 team because Maryland won in 2002, but I believe they they were a part of the ACC, correct? Oh yeah. Yeah. They're
2: they're ACC, but the big 10 does claim that title now.
0: Okay. All right. There you go. (laughs) Now, uh, the last team, last time a big 10 team made the, uh, national championship game.
1: That was uh Wisconsin against a, Kentucky in ED, right? The, Ross, the Frank-
0: there,
2: a, there was a Michigan team, I think, with uh a, a B, a, by I can't even remember how to pronounce his name. B line. Yeah, John B Line. Uh, yeah. Yeah, with uh Trey Burke, maybe. Yes.
0: Both good that, guesses. Uh, Michigan made the national title in 2018. And lost. Right,
2: to that's Nova. Oh, okay. Oh. I think I was thinking. I was thinking. Didn't they? Did one of them? Did they have a team that lost to Louisville in the title
0: game too? Or in was that 2013? Yep. Yeah. Um, that was oh, that okay. Trey Burke team. Uh, the second okay. most recent was Wisconsin losing to Duke in 2015. That's um, true. That was so.
2: that was was that Frank the Tank? Frank Kaminsky. Yep.
0: You got it. <laughs> yep. It's, you know, I'm looking at this list and it's amazing the repeated names you see for coaches. Bill Self, Jay Wright, Roy Williams, Coach K. Like, just repeatedly. Uh, I don't
2: even remember who was on that Michigan team that lost to Villanova.
0: Was that Jordan Poole?
2: Yeah. Oh.
1: Yeah, he was, Poole was the one that sort of saved that tourney run from the very start. Like, I, I think it was against Houston that he hit that miracle three from about 40 feet.
0: Because oh, if it weren't
1: for that, like, I think they would have been out in the first weekend. Oh, so how... Sorry. I was done.
0: I was going to say, oh, how the mighty have fallen. He is now on the Washington Wizards, who have won nine games this season, and he is bad.
2: <laughs> he's getting he's getting punched by Draymond, so...
0: Yeah, right, yeah.
2: <laughs> you know, um, for,
1: for nine figures, Draymond could kick me in the shins every day for a year.
0: Same.
2: Yeah,
0: same. Um, <laughs> There were two jokes I wanted to make while we were talking about officiating, and then we'll talk about this bubble being burst, and and we can we can wrap up here because it is ten thirty at night as we are recording this. But uh, the only person, there's one person who can say Big Ten officiating that I'm thinking of, and I want I'm curious who you guys would think of off the top of your head, and we'll make this quick. But I'm I'm curious. Frank Stallone. I don't know who that is, Ross. Uh, Ed Hightower. Tim Donahue. Oh. No, God. <laughs> <laughs> the other one, the other joke I was going to make, Adam, I think you retweeted it, uh, about the, like AI needing to be our next officials. Uh, you were saying <laughs> there's, there's one way to fix the replay issue. And the whole time I was thinking deploy AI. That's, that's, <laughs> that's our only solution to fix the future chat, of officiating. The chat, The chat GPT refs (laughs) as long as it's not Google Gemini. Okay. All right. Uh, Oh, next thing. Um, now, uh, in terms of the bubble, I think I saw somewhere on Twitter that if Iowa won that game against Illinois, they had like a 60% chance to make the tournament. If they lost, it was 10%. Now the way things shake out for Iowa going forward to get to the tournament, in my opinion, they've got to win out. Um, you can't lose to Penn State again. You can't lose to Penn State again. That's not a good enough team to be swept by. Um, you shouldn't You shouldn't have been swept by Maryland to boot. Um, you have to beat Northwestern on the road. That's a big win. It's a quad one win. Of course, they got Boo Booey. They've got some good players. That's a good team. Um, and then they were with Illinois for a good portion of the game. They were ahead of them by seven. Um, which is another thing we need to talk about in regards to that loss, but, uh, or, or we could talk about it anyway, but you have an opportunity to beat Illinois at home. So if you can go three and one over these last four games, including that last loss, if you go three and over these last three games, which they've done, they've won three games in a row throughout the season, even though it's been since then, it's been loss, loss, win, win, loss, win, loss, win, win, whatever. That's not exactly, it's been felt like that anyway. Um, and then you have to win one or two games in the Big 10 tournament. Um closer to two than one. And if you don't go 3 and 1 over this stretch, you got to go pretty damn far in the Big 10 tournament. Um and and, and and
1: again, we've seen the committee not really care what happens in the Big 10 tournament.
0: Right. Right, and that's true. Uh it's, it's just starting to stack up in a way that's not advantageous to Iowa. The the, the way the schedule worked itself out and the way it fell this year. We talked about this early on when the team was struggling and they were 0-3 in the Big Ten, is you have to win that that stretch of games where you're not playing these great teams because you get to the back end of your schedule and it is a gauntlet. you won against Wisconsin. you won against Michigan State. That's huge, but it would have been more huge if you won the games you were supposed to win. You beat Michigan at home. You beat Maryland at home. You probably could have beat Maryland on the road. Um, I, I got to look at the the schedule to to uh, give me better context. But I the mean, Indiana loss was yes,
1: brutal and an object lesson. And don't dig yourself a 17 point hole if you don't have to, because they they're Indiana was never that much better than Iowa.
2: No, they're a bad, bad team. That was a yeah. bad loss.
1: It was a Very bad loss.
0: Yeah, and just getting worse. Like the other thing too, is rebounding and defense. Like we can we can talk about defense till the cows come home with Iowa, right? That's just the way Fran has structured the way he runs things. It's offense, 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 and offense again. It reminds me, you guys ever watch Game of Zones, the Game of Thrones spoof thing with Bleacher Report? I've seen it. Yes. Yeah, it's,
1: it's really smart stuff. It's I
0: amazing. Like it. There's a scene where. Uh, Coach D'Antonio uh, meets James Harden for the first time because they're uniting in Houston. And he's got this huge library of books about offense. And James says, you must have a whole separate room for all your books on defense. And Coach D'Antonio <laughs> goes defense. I say half the defense double the offense (laughs) he's uh, Fran McCaffrey that's that's all I think about I've thought about this season but um in in regards to that we talked about the rebounding I talked about it in the article I talked about it in um that article that I put out on Friday that that re-edited Ross um about things Trending in the right direction, then winning these two games. What's the commonalities? Why are these things working? And we talk about the bond, we talk about the leadership because those two facets of this team have been good. I am a very strong believer in the individuals that are on this team as people, particularly. I uh, when I you talk about Peyton Sanford, I think he's the leader of this team needed. Um, there's just a lack of of talent on this team that would have kind of filled those extra gaps. In terms of the way they want to do things, that they just didn't have this year. They that needed because of the structure of the team needed to be filled by the ability to rebound, which they haven't done on a consistent basis. Ben Cricky goes out and gets 14 rebounds. What do they do? They beat Michigan State away from home. He w- he scored 15 points and was seven of nine from the field, but he only got five boards against Illinois. Owen Freeman, I think in the first half had one rebound, two rebounds. Tony Perkins he finished with eight. But he and Tony Perkins led the team in rebounding. They each had eight. Then it was Peyton Sanford with seven. That's that's just not how you can do things. Laji Dembele only played six minutes, which I pointed that out in the presser post game. And Fran said, Yeah, you're right. He should have played more. Yeah, he should have. Especially when you got a guy like Coleman Hawkins who goes for 30. And Lodgy's the only guy who's like has the size and the athletic ability to keep up with a guy like that. So why did he only play six minutes? Why has he only got one board? He played. He scored six points in six minutes. Why does he only have one board on the on the stat sheet? This team that likes to get out and run, you gotta get boards to do that, and they're not doing it on a consistent enough basis to have the amount of wins they need to to get into the NCAA tournament.
2: I mean, you're right. <laughs> that,
0: that's that's absolutely
2: true, uh, and I think that rebounding has just been a persistent issue for them. Um all season long, especially in those losses that we cited, you know, where they that come from ahead losses where they just they couldn't get those rebounds and stop those runs and you know maybe get some easier buckets for themselves or get some transition opportunities for themselves where you know we know they're really good in, in transition. Um and part of that I think is, is team construction. Um you didn't you know you didn't add a you know they lost Chris Murray and Rebracha last season two strong rebounders and they didn't bring in I mean they brought in Cricky who has had a game here and there where he's a good rebounder but you know I think at this point we've seen 25 games or so from him he's not a consistent rebounder it's not not something he's done on a regular basis and that hurts because you may, need may, that that
1: may I inject one stat here Ben Cricky's defensive rebounding rate is 12.0%, according to Ken Palm. By way of comparison, Patrick McCaffrey's is 12.6. Oh. And, I and didn't Tony even Perkins' it. is 11.2. Right? So, so Cricky's between Perkins and McCaffrey as a defensive rebounder, except he's 6'9", 245.
2: It's not what you want out of your, your, your four guy.
0: <laughs> I didn't even mention Patrick McCaffrey, either, who was Minus twenty one in twenty one minutes yesterday. I don't love the individual game plus minus as a reference to who you are as a player.
1: It's indicative there, though. Yeah, (laughs) it's pretty damn indicative. He he had a really tough time with Coleman Hawkins and and Dembele. I thought did a
2: better job on Hawkins. That's that's what I was gonna say. Is like that that minus twenty one for the game stands out when, like Elliot pointed out, Laji Dembele only plays six minutes. Like. Maybe they need to be a little bit less Patrick in that game and a little bit more Lodgy to try and – I mean, Coleman Hawkins was NBA Jam levels of on fire yesterday. So I think Iowa would have only been able to do so much to slow him down, especially when he's shooting threes like that. Like Then he becomes really, really difficult to guard. But if anybody's going to have a chance at slowing him down, I think it's on this Iowa roster, it's Dembele. So I would try to get him out there – Defending Hawkins as much as you can to at least give yourself a chance, you know. I think that's that's the
0: issue here. The the other thing I'll say about Dembele that I'm sure somebody out there who's listening is saying this either out loud in their car when they're driving somewhere or in their head is that you have to roll with the punches with Dembele at this point in his career. He's gonna make mistakes, he's gonna foul. He had three first half fouls against Michigan State. Um, he and Owen were both in trouble, and with the way Owen has gotten into that physical trouble, here's the other thing or the foul trouble is he had zero fouls in the first half against Illinois, but he had one rebound. You can't sacrifice that physicality because you like if you sacrifice the physicality, you're not bringing the value that you do. When you do put up those two fouls, I'd rather you have have that value on the court with two fouls than not bring value and play 12 minutes or or 15 minutes as opposed to eight. So. Point being. um, With Lodgy, you're going to have those lapses, you're going to have the frustrating turnovers. You're going to have missed shots that that probably wasn't the best option. There are multiple times I've seen Logie take a fadeaway shot with way too much time on the shot clock. You take those lapses, you learn from them, you go forward. You can see the disappointment on his face. But the way you get that confidence back, the way you get that thing going with him is reps, is time on the floor. And if you don't give that to him, then he's not going to grow. Then he's going to you know, continue maybe some of these bad habits and practice does a lot, but practice reps versus full game speed reps are two different things. Now, I, like I said, Logie should have played more. You're going to have to roll with the punches with Logie If that's the case, if that's what you do, just because of that youth. And that goes with Owen, that goes with Peyton, that goes with, or uh, with uh, Price rather with Brock Harding and another player who barely played yesterday, Brock Harding and, and Price, for that matter, who all bring value to the team, but they comp- play to combine like 13 minutes between the three of them, yet Payton's out there, sorry, geez, too many P's on this team. <laughs> Patrick is out there and has a minus 21 plus minus. Ross, it looked like you were saying something.
2: I was going to say, I think that's really important for Dembele because he gives you, he, he has the ability to give you something that no one else on the team does, which is that that athleticism on the inside, the the size, the rebounding ability, the defense. Um, you know, I, I do think there should be ways to get Harding and Price more minutes too, but Dumbelli, especially, like Iowa just does not have another interior player anywhere close to what he does or can do. You know, in theory and in, in potential. Um, you know, Cricky is not that guy. He's a different type of player. Freeman does some of the same things, um, but he's also different. Um, we don't see much of bronze for various reasons. Um, it's kind of a fouling machine. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just think Dembele, because he, he has the ability to do, you know, things that no one else does. I think you need to, like you said, stick with him through some of those mistakes and errors and let him play, play through that. Uh, because I think what you're going to get on the other, other side of things, uh, is really valuable, can be really valuable.
1: The the one thing that I'll add with Dembele, and, and I don't think that this invalidates any of you guys' points here, but it does really underline the fact that, you know, he's got a lot of headaches going on. Uh, Dembele is by far the lowest on uh, Ken Palm in offensive rating for the team. He's a sub 80. And like the only other guy who's even below 100 is Brock Harding at 97.2. Uh, his turnover rate Dembele's turnover rate is 26.3 um nobody else is even close even Brock Harding's is only 19 which is also way too high um 7.4 fouls in 40 minutes and that you know you could see a coach saying you know we we can't really have that on the floor but we're also talking about a guy who gets about 10 minutes a game right so if he commits fouls too often. Okay. <laughs> let, let him have four fouls in 15 minutes or 20 minutes. What's he going to do? Foul out. All right. <laughs> and and like, let him get used to having that ball in his hands and, and going up against live defense and, and not just like practice defense, you know, let him get used to, you know, creating better shots for himself, but also, you know, Get him more used to being a, a, a solid offensive rebounder. Like, like get that out of him right now while you can. Um, he's a he's a I think his shooting strokes pretty good. He's still only only a 30% three-point shooter, but that's valuable to have on the floor. It's better than Patrick McCaffrey for the season. <laughs> like there he does bring benefits right now, and the you see these green shoots of him being a pretty special player or at the very least a like consistent high level starter for this team. You you can see the potential for that already. So yeah, is Iowa going to, you know, take some lumps with him in there? Is is Iowa going to, unless he's got a really good matchup, like, I don't know, Coleman Hawkins was like, are, are there going to be some rough patches with Dembele in the lineup? yeah but there's also rough patches without him in the lineup <laughs> there's no utopia here that involves other players van dembele for iowa not this season so yeah like don't tank there, there's there's nothing that iowa gets out of like not trying to win first and foremost but understand what your future is here and uh i, I elliot i absolutely agree um Brock Harding should be getting more minutes too, um, even if his, some of his measurables and, and percentages are you know, themselves trouble spots. Um, speaking of demonetization, he's a shitster. Iowa <laughs> needs a shitster on the floor a lot more often than six minutes a game. Like, Bring some of that attitude back. Listen, Molly Davis is a shit stirrer too. She's not as vocal about it as um Brock is, who is, but like like she goes about it a different way. But like you need some attitude on the court. Tony Perkins is good at it, but he's we're seeing a little bit more of it out of Peyton. But like Brock comes by it naturally, and, and it exudes. he exudes it to other guys on the team too. If nothing else, like give your team a little bit of swag. Have Brock on the court more often. Like just just get that much out of him.
0: I was gonna say swagger with oh. Brock. Yeah, I mean shitster or swagger, whatever you want to call him, or yeah. or a tribute to him. The ball moves a lot better with Brock Harding on the floor as well. Yeah, um, speaking of hockey assists, right. Yeah. The other thing too is. This team just hasn't shot the three ball well this year and or, or shot it as frequently. Josh Gix is automatic from fifteen feet. Uh Tony Perkins has that get in the lane, fire up a shot. Um but when you have and, and it's not Brock Harding has not been a good shooter this year. He hit that three against Wisconsin and it was like it was incredible. I was surprised because when he puts up a shot, I don't expect it to go in. Like that's, that's just, I'll, I'll say that and, and to be truthful, but with, with the way the ball moves, you're getting Peyton Sanford an open shot. He might not be the threat to get the shot, but he's has the ability to create and his two man game with Owen Freeman is fun as hell. Like who doesn't like that? Um. So I don't really have a ton else to, to, really reference for for the men as we go here i i don't think they make the ncaa tournament at this rate we laid out how it's just it's a tough task you can't lose to penn state you got to win at northwestern you got to beat uh what might be a top 10 team in the country um uh, excuse me in in a couple weeks here um in illinois they have about a week off between i think northwestern and and illinois so we'll we'll see what they can put together there especially um if they're able I mean, to string two wins together. but
2: I, Yeah, I was going to say, I think we just got to check in on them a week from now. Um, they got to beat Penn State. They just, they cannot lose that game and have any shot of, at that point, the only chance of making the tournament is, you know, sweep the Big Ten tournament, win four games in four days, which I don't <laughs> think that, that doesn't seem likely for this particular Iowa team. Um, so they got to beat Penn State and then they got to beat Northwestern, I think, uh, on the weekend too. To at least set up a situation where they can go into that Illinois game and know, hey, win this game, then you know we got, you know we got something cooking a little bit. We got to keep the door open at least. Um, if they go into that game, you know, with one, with one or two losses this week, no, that it's it's toast. NIT,
0: NIT, NIT, three letters. Now. Yep. We're going to wrap it up here momentarily. I, I just want to give you the floor here, Ross. Talk a little bit about wrestling. What impressed you today from their matchup with Oklahoma State? And one name in particular that I saw is Ben Keeter, who is that dual sport athlete for the Hawkeyes and upset the number 11 wrestler in the country at heavyweight. So that was pretty impressive. But, Ross, I'll I'll let you go here. And um, uh, I mentioned Cooper Koch. Just read the premium article when it comes out. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to bring that full circle. Go ahead, Ralph.
2: Yeah. Don't forget to subscribe so you can read that if you're not already a subscriber. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, this was, I would say by far the best top to bottom performance uh, I was had this year in a dual meet and it came uh, against one of their t- best opponents. I mean, Okie State was undefeated 14 to no ranked number two in the country. Uh, really strong team. They got a lot of, a lot of good wrestlers themselves uh, at, at almost every weight. So very difficult opponent. Uh, and Iowa just wrestled really well. I mean, they won 7 of 10 matches. Uh, they got wins. The first five matches, they just alternated wins and losses. Uh, Drake Ayala got a good win at, at uh, 125 to start. Real Woods got a, a key win at 141. Kind of got his momentum going. And then uh, Franick got a really good win at 157, which uh, he had lost I think three of his last five matches, something like that. So not, not a great spot for him. Right. But uh, he, he turned it around, beat a top 10 guy himself. Um, had a really good match. He, he got multiple takedowns, which has been kind of an issue for him this year. Sometimes he just gets one and kind of sits on it and tries to win like a three, two match, very low scoring uh, or four, four, two. Now takedowns worth three points. Um, and then the second half of the duel, I uh, just Iowa looked really good. Um, they came out with a win at 165. Uh, Caliendo, which was technically an upset. He he was ranked seventh. The guy he beat was ranked third, uh, so that's a really nice win for him. Uh, Patrick Kennedy looked great up at 174. He got a just he got the only bonus point win of the duel. He uh, won 12-3. Just really dominated his guy uh, from start to finish. Really good match. Uh, Gabe Arnold, true freshman, got the start at 184. Tough match for him. He was going up against the number two guy at that weight. Um, couldn't do a ton. Uh, give up one takedown. Got ridden pretty hard. Just wasn't really able to get going. I, I, Arnold is probably a 174 guy for Iowa, not 184. So this was not the greatest weight, great, greatest spot for him. Uh, and then 197, uh, Zach Glazer, he's been. Probably the best story on this Iowa team this year. He sat behind Jacob Warner for several years. Uh, finally, getting a shot in the starting lineup this year uh, is now. I think twenty-one and one. He's been awesome. He is personally, like, kind of just because of the way the duels work. But he has locked up six different dual meet victories for Iowa this season. Like his match was the one that made it so that there was no way Iowa could lose the duel after that point. Um, this was the sixth time he had done that. Uh, just been a really, really solid, consistent performer. Um, and so then at 285, you know, you mentioned, uh, Keeter, um, the duel was settled at that point. Um, but Iowa has used him, um, I want to say like four of the last six dual meets, something like that. Um, just kind of the new red shirt rules allow them to wrestle a guy and still preserve the ability to use that red shirt. So kind of like football where you can, you know, be in four games. Uh, and still, still take a red shirt in wrestling. Now you can do like five dates, so like tournaments or or duels. Um, so they're use, trying to test him out, see what he can do. Uh, and this was definitely his best win. I mean, he he was two and one heading into this one, um, taking on the number eleven guy. Um, he his his offense from neutral. So like when when they're both on their feet, still looks rough. He's not really getting a lot of takedowns. Not really. Uh, Getting a lot going at that point yet, Um, but he was really good on the mat in this this match. Uh, He got a reversal in the third period, and uh, just rode the guy the rest of the period. Looked really good. Uh, So it it creates an interesting choice, I think, for uh, Tom Brands. ah, Excuse me, heading into the Big Ten tournament, um, which is in uh, two weeks, actually. Uh, So they got to decide, you know, they've had Bradley Hill, a redshirt freshman, has wrestled most of the year at heavyweight. Uh, They've wrestled Keeter, like I said, four matches, I think, um, over the second half, over the second semester since he started with them. And they got to decide, you know, are you going to roll with Hill or are you going to roll with Keeter in the Big Ten tournament and then uh, the NCAA tournament? And I think that'll be an interesting... Uh, decision to make. Um, I kind of lean towards using Heater in the in the Big Ten and NCAA tournaments because I don't know that if you use his red shirt, you're banking on him being here for four more years. I don't know that he will when he has that football um, you know, career that he's also pursuing. Uh, it, it's a shame we didn't get to see him play football at all this past fall, so we really don't know where he stands on that side of the, you know, the equation. But what we've heard from coaches and players is he looks good. You know, he's doing some good things. It sounded like, so you got to think he's going to be in the mix at linebacker sooner rather than later. And, you know, if you're only going to have him for three or four years, why not use him in, in an NCAA tournament when you have him, you know, see what he can do rather than, save him for a year that you might not get down the road anyway. So that's so, so,
1: are you saying his upside at this point, even in a uh, this year's tournaments, is higher than Hill?
2: I think his upside is, I don't know that he'll, I don't know that he can get there. Um, but I think with Hill, the odds of him making the, you know, being an All-American are very, very slim. He's, he's, he's done well this year, but mostly he's been able to beat Guys that are at his level or worse, he's not had a lot of success against guys ranked higher than him. Um, so that doesn't bode well for, you know, making a push for all-American. Keeter, I think he's raw. He's really raw at the college level, obviously, but he has a ton of upside, a ton of ability. I mean, he was a top five overall recruit because of that incredible ability. So, you know, I, I think yeah, I think that that upside at least gives him a shot that hey, you know, maybe he can win a few matches in March and uh, it and surprise some people.
0: There you have it. That was this episode of HotCast. We appreciate you tuning in. Um, hopefully you're not listening at this hour as we are wrapping up recording. Um, but uh, <laughs> if you are, thanks so much. make sure you hit that subscribe. No matter where you're listening, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Uh, Google Play, of course, YouTube as well. You might be listening to us, but you might not be subscribed. So make sure you do that for us as well. That way you don't miss a single episode that we get out wherever you may be listening if you're on YouTube. Drop us your thoughts. Can the men make the NCAA tournament? Are we right with our assessment? What do you think? And does the Big Ten have an officiating problem, or did we just rant about something for no reason? I'm going to go ahead and answer my first question and say, yes, there is an officiating problem. (laughs) Uh, Again, if you want to read any of our premium content or be part of our subscriber board where you can get all the insider information on recruiting men's basketball, women's basketball, and football. All of that right there. Join us and our community there today at iowathoutrivals.com backslash subscribe. We would love to have you and to be along for the ride with us. That Cooper Koch article coming tomorrow. Very excited to drop some intel on his game. Spoiler alert, he's pretty freaking good. Worth that (laughs) four-star rating. Now, uh, once again, I am Elliot Clough, at Elliot Clough on Twitter, joined by Adam Jacoby and Ross Binder here on this episode of Hotcast. For now, we will see you next time.